WBUR Podcasts, Boston. It's a warm June day in Boston, the first after a long winter. People are hanging out on their front porches, opening windows, letting in the fresh air. I'm walking down one of Dorchester's side streets. It's a residential part of the neighborhood. Multi-story homes that have mostly been converted into apartments. I'm on my way to check in with Andre and Jeff D to talk with them about someone who's missing from their lives. It's been a while since I've visited with the Timothy family, since they told me about what happened to Benin Timothy. She was a mom, a wife. She and her kids had just moved to the city from Haiti, and then, in an instant, she was gone. She was killed on a Saturday afternoon in October 2016, gunned down on a busy street not far from here. When I show up, Benin's husband, Andre, is sitting on the front steps of a brown wooden home. Hi. Hi. I'm here to speak to... Oh, good to Andre. Yes. yes. Okay. Hi. Okay. <laughs> I didn't recognize you without your mask. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> he leads the way to their apartment on the second floor. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, good. Good. Okay. okay. <laughs> so nice out. I'm here because I have new details to share with Andre and his 18-year-old son, Jeff D. Details that offer a sharper picture of the final moments of Benin's life. And I have new insight into the investigation. Over the last couple months, I've been requesting documents from the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office and the Boston Police Department. I've sought out more information, and I hear how the family is giving up on law enforcement. In his opinion, he thinks that they give up on the case. He said that he don't think they've been working on it from the past two years. After six years, the only thing the family knows is that there have been no arrests in Benin's case, no suspects. So Andre, the dad, has been filling in the blanks himself about Benin's death, theories about why her homicide remains unsolved. I had questions too, like why has this family been kept in the dark for so long? And what does it mean for a family new to the U.S. to navigate loss and the legal system in a country that might not feel like home. Welcome to Last Scene, our show about people, places, and things that have gone missing. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm independent investigative reporter Shannon Dooling, bringing you part two of this three-part series about the Timothys, a family's peace. Back in January of 2021, I sat down for the first time with Andre, his son Jeff D, and his daughter, 19-year-old Nalissa. When we met in that echoey room by the community center, Nalissa was reserved, chiming in every now and then, helping interpret for her dad and sometimes correcting her brother's English. And she shared one detail in particular about the aftermath of her mom's death, 
something that happened in the following weeks and months that, in her words, pissed her off. Can I say something? Yeah. One thing that is really kind of like, uh, I, it just pissed me off. Yes, go ahead. Because the cups they give my dad, he they kind of rely on me and Jeff to kind of like, it upset Nalissa that the police expected her and Jeffy to interpret for their dad, who speaks Haitian Creole. When their mom was killed, Jeffy was 12, Nalissa was 13. Their English skills were understandably basic. They'd only been in Boston for three months. They were interviewed by a local television station in the days after Benin's killing. Tears streaming down their young faces, trying to express their pain in real time. I'm not feeling good because my mother is lost. I'm very sad. None of that seemed to matter. They felt they had to fulfill a new role as interpreters, to speak with lawyers and police officers at meetings. I don't think it was fair to us to kind of like interpret stuff. Yeah, they, I think they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Like, they, they were, like, kind of relying on us, like, on purpose. Because they, they knew we couldn't do anything about it. I'm guessing that's why they did that. Years later, it's like both Jeffy and Nalissa feel safe expressing their frustration, realizing now what it meant for law enforcement to ask them to interpret for their dad after the killing. It's hard to know how often this happens, when kids are asked to help with interpretation during a horrible time in their own lives. But in a city with a lot of immigrants like Boston, what happened to Jeffy and Nalissa doesn't seem unusual. I also checked, and of Boston's 2,000 sworn police officers, about two dozen speak Haitian Creole. It might seem like a lot, but not if you consider that Boston has one of the largest Haitian-American communities in the country— it might feel normal in the heat of the moment to have a family member translate after a crime. Law enforcement needs to communicate quickly and effectively with the people close to the victim. But with a serious incident and a longer investigation, asking the bereaved to serve as a translator didn't feel appropriate. In the end, no Creole-speaking officers were assigned to Benin's case. Jeffy did speak with one of the detectives on the case, he still has his business card. He says he called him several times, and they talked about how football was going for Jeffy. After a while, Jeffy started to leave messages. The detective stopped responding, so Jeffy stopped calling. The last time the family heard from that detective was in 2018, when he invited them to a police-sponsored barbecue. We'll hear more from the Boston police later, but first, I'm curious what questions Andre, Nalissa, and Jeffy still have for the investigators. What would they ask them now? Andre, of course, says he wants to know what happened to his wife and how the police would support his family. But Nalissa, Nalissa is looking for something else. Yeah, I see this talk of mine that went through and how much, like, I don't know, he really want to figure this out. Nalissa sees how knowing so little about the investigation has taken a toll on her family. So she's stopped holding out for more. Because I feel like they will never pay attention to us because 
don't know, I feel like it, we're immigrant, we come here, it's not a country, and we're black. There's racism. I learned this in school, I learned this the hard way too. Like, there's systematic racism here, so where I know deep down we're not gonna really get anything from them, so I don't really have a question, but just for my dad's sakes, I just want him to kind of like... Put this to rest. Yeah. We want to put this to rest. Yeah, because it's gonna... Nalissa is looking for something the police can't provide. Because for her, justice isn't only about holding someone accountable for the crime. It's about reclaiming the parts of herself that she lost that day. The Timothy family knows very few details about what happened the day Benin died. Only that she was shot and killed walking out of the convenience store. And that a 15-year-old boy was also injured on Washington Street that day. One news report cites the police saying that he could have been targeted by gangs. The boy's father disputed that, saying his son was an innocent bystander. There's a copy of a police report that the Timothy family gave to me, but it's sparse on details, and it doesn't mention the teenager who was shot. So I asked the Boston police for any additional incident reports related to the crime, and it turns out there's a little more we know about that day. It was 2.27 in the afternoon, Saturday, October 29th. Officers responded to reports of a shooting in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood, where a lot of Haitian Americans live. There's markets and restaurants offering Caribbean food, the occasional sign in Creole. And the officers were directed to Washington Street, the heart of the neighborhood. A police report says, On arrival, the officers observed a victim on the sidewalk in front of 152 Washington Street with an apparent gunshot wound to her upper chest. 152 Washington, right next to the market Benin frequented, across the street from the community center where she was learning English. We also know that the windshield of a nearby parked car was struck during the shooting, and that officers collected evidence from the car, part of a spent projectile, in layman's terms, part of a bullet. And we know that six years after this homicide, on a busy street in Boston, there have been no arrests, no suspects. Are you doing okay? Yeah. I'm visiting Jeff D. and Andre today because I have a few new details to share. In their apartment, Andre tends to food on the stovetop. What do you have cooking right now? Yeah, I go to rice and chicken. Smells really good. The place is flooded with a warm, natural light. There's framed photos on the shelves, memories of life in Haiti before everything changed. Jeffy has a bright smile on his face and sort of saunters out of his room carrying a few old pictures. I'll find a few. Yeah. Oh was, wow! Is that can you can you describe the photos for the, yeah, for the radio? That was my mom and, and my dad in Haiti. They took that picture. I think we was going to church. Was there was some like kind of event going on at the uh -huh, church? Uh -huh. We was just getting ready for nice. it. Nice. Yeah, they look they look all dressed up. Yep. For months, I've asked law enforcement about the investigation into Benin's killing, requested documents like case filings and witness notes. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office denies my requests for records, saying the case is open and active. 
That means law enforcement doesn't have to release the files if they believe doing so could compromise the investigation. So I can't see them. The family can't see them. But here's a question. What does active mean? The DA's office said in emails that no records had been filed in this investigation in the last two years, just as Andre suspected. Not a new piece of evidence, not a new witness, not an interview. Sitting in their apartment, sharing this update with Andre and Jeffy, I realized that this discussion, these details about the lack of progress on the case, even that confirmation, is more than the families received from law enforcement since Benin died. Yeah, October is going to be six years now since everything happened and nothing, like no one said anything to us and nothing really happened. Nobody helped us or do anything about it. He said that to him, like everybody just take that. This eve, like this tragedy that just happened is not important. It's easy to see why Andre feels this way, why the family feels forgotten. Going through life with this massive unknown, years pass and still nothing. The void remains. I imagine it must be similar for the loved ones of the more than 1,300 other victims of unsolved homicides in Suffolk County, some dating back to the 1960s. The DA's office told me that when investigators have no motive to work off of, when no one is coming forward with new information, it's common for cases to remain open and unsolved. But what's the victim's family supposed to do with that? Law enforcement might not have new information to offer the family, but we do. That's after the break. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. I've shared an update about the investigation with the Timothy family, that the DA's office has filed no new paperwork on the case in recent years. But there's more. After nearly six months of exchanging emails and calls, I'm able to get the police dispatch transcripts and recordings from that day. And I pieced together some of the context around the final moments of Benin's life. Not surprisingly, it was chaotic on Washington Street just after the shooting— 
There's a silver car reportedly seen fleeing the area. There's a push to get officers to the scene and ambulances. But a closer look shows how parts of the response are strained, that it's a response that appears to have failed Benin. But before I bring these new details to the family, I need to understand what I was reading and hearing. So, Tom, did you have a chance to look over those transcripts? And if so, what are your kind of takeaways, if any? Uh, It seems um, I looked at Channel 3 and Channel 6, routine calls interspersed with the the homicide-related calls. Tom Nolan is a retired Boston police lieutenant. He now teaches sociology at Emanuel College here in Boston. I asked him to review the police dispatch transcripts to help me interpret what I was reading. And then we got Harry 982, that's the Dorchester Sergeant Detective. And he says, can we make full notifications on this, please? That means they have a homicide. So when you see full notifications, full notifications means full not- means notify everybody we have a homicide here. Um, and so, so is that- it safe to assume that at that point someone had was deceased on scene? Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a homicide. And this is even before the, the ambulance has arrived. The ambulance hadn't even arrived. Yeah, and then whoever, it's, I'm assuming this is your victim, the woman, she's dead. I'm taken aback by this detail, that Benin appears to have died before an ambulance was even on scene. If Benin had been shot on a Saturday night in the height of summer, when we know big cities typically see an uptick in gun violence, then maybe this delayed response would make a little more sense, a supply and demand type of chain reaction. But this happened in October, and according to the police dispatch records, officers were told by Boston EMS, which sends the ambulances, that there were no units available at that moment. That means in a city of close to 700,000 people, with the largest EMS department in the region, employing hundreds of emergency personnel, with two dozen city ambulances, as well as privately contracted units, officers at the scene were told EMS was trying to get somebody there. The closest emergency room was about two and a half miles away, a 15-minute drive. On the tape, You hear officers at the scene repeatedly ask for updates on an ambulance. The recording is a bit scratchy. You're going to have EMS roll through here? Did EMS dispatch yet? Is EMS on the way yet? I ask Nolan whether this type of EMS response is routine. I mean, is it normal for officers to be told that there are no ambulances available? You know, they could have been swamped that day, but, I mean, a shooting is, that's that's a priority. One, that's the highest priority, and it's a confirmed shooting, meaning that there are police on the scene who are saying, we have two people shot. And so EMS should have dropped everything that they're doing um, and, and rushed to the scene of that. Now, I don't know if that would have made a difference because the the sergeant detective um, says, you know, that she's dead. So, um, I mean, chances are that, you know, that the EMS would have made come to the same conclusion. I don't know, but, um, but an ambulance should have been there for sure. 
Here's what we know and what's still unclear about when an ambulance actually arrived at the scene. Boston EMS says it took six minutes within the department's goals for getting one of its units there. But we don't know what time that ambulance was sent to the scene. How long did it take after officers had already arrived for EMS to dispatch that ambulance? You can hear police wondering what's going on in the recordings. EMS says they can't release the time of day the unit was dispatched because of patient privacy concerns. I've asked the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office to weigh in on that. It may take weeks to get an answer, so chances are we won't know more until after this airs. Charlie, two or two, the EMS dispatcher. Hey, what's the EMS on the way in? Oh, EMS to push to the location. After reviewing that day in detail with Nolan, I find myself having a hard time digesting it all. I just picture Andre, Jeff D, and Melissa going about their business that Saturday, not knowing that Benin had just been shot, not far from their apartment, and that officers were repeatedly asking for an ambulance to get to Washington Street. Before I brought all of this to Jeff D, he was able to at least assume that things were different that day, that maybe doctors in the ER tried saving his mom's life. He didn't know this for sure, of course. He was never told what actually happened. But now, a new scene is playing out in his head. One that ends right there on the sidewalk. I wonder, Jeff D., what's going through your head listening to that? A lot. Like, a lot is really going on, because all I'm I'm mostly thinking about was that we made a stupid choice. I'm sorry for the language I use, because all I'd be thinking about is that if we never come here, something like that would never happen. Because I know if like, they had never come here to the U.S. Like, but I just wanted to say it was like a stupid choice coming here, because all that's happening is kind of crazy. Because I seen, I seen when people call that one one, I seen it happen come less than five minutes and stuff like that. But this is all, I, I got a lot going on. But it's just, it just kind of hard to process all that. Here's the thing about searching for answers after so many years. There's no guarantee you'll be ready when you receive them. Andre finds this new scene hard to accept. At this point, it's difficult for him to trust anything coming from law enforcement, to believe anything. Saki pife bal. He said that what hurts more is that we're living in this big country where, like, like there's opportunity, like, from based where we came from. Like, he said that, but uh, based on his experience, everything he find out about this country is technically a lie because everyone that he talked to, like, saying that they was going to help us, uh, they're technically putting up a show. For four years, the Timothy family says they'd heard nothing from Boston police. And in the absence of any real communication with law enforcement, Andre, along with others in Boston's Haitian community, have filled the void, circulating and cultivating their own theories about what happened that day. In fact, when I read him the police dispatch transcripts, Andre questions something in there. 
the mention of that silver car possibly fleeing the scene. C'est pas vérité parce que tout le monde qui est dans zone là côté bas là t'es passé là. He's saying that he thinks that report is fake, that they're lying, because he's saying that if it was like some other person that shot my mom, they would have, like, find justice or something. And this is where the story takes a turn. At least for Andre. He believes he knows who killed Benin. And they weren't driving a silver car. He said that based on what he heard from like the people that were sucking on the street, then he said that then he heard that the people were saying that the police was shooting at someone else. That the police were shooting at someone else. Andre's theory doesn't specify who they were shooting at, but he believes that the BPD was chasing a suspect and opened fire. And then the person kind of got behind my mom and my mom got shot instead of the person. He said that's why, that's why he heard that happen. He's basically saying that report is fake. The dispatch records are fake, Andre says, that they leave a lot out. Big doubts surround this theory. The police officers were pursuing someone else and the Benin got in their crossfire. But Andre believes it, and so do others. So I asked Boston police, what do they think? If a Boston police officer discharges their firearm, they are required to notify operations immediately. That's Sergeant Detective John Boyle, spokesperson for the Boston Police Department. I have not heard this. Uh, I will check with investigators, but uh, I, I do not believe that is true. We, we would have determined that in a, an investigation at this point. I double-checked with Boyle, asking if there were records from that day showing any Boston police officers fired their weapon. He said no, there were none. Since 2016, the Boston police have commented very little on the case, including when I recently asked the sergeant detective over a Zoom interview if he could confirm whether there's been any new developments. No, no, I wouldn't be able to do that. Where it's an open investigation, we would not be able to give information like that out. He can't tell me whether there have been any new developments, let alone what they might be. And in the absence of information from the police— Andre listened when people in the community told him what they heard or what they believed they saw that day. People I've had no luck tracking down. Still, Andre clings to this idea that the Boston Police Department hasn't solved Benin's homicide because it was one of their own officers who shot her. He's not alone. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to come into your home. I appreciate it. So I was hoping, Samuel, um, we can chat a little bit. Yeah. Samuel Osias is something of a celebrity in Boston's Haitian community. He has his own online radio show, Radio Vibrations. It's mostly Haitian music, with some politics sprinkled in here and there. After Benin's death, Andre reached out to Samuel for help. He has connections in the community. He's lived in Boston for more than 30 years. Samuel, in turn, connects the family with a lawyer and a private investigator. Years later, Andre and Samuel both have more questions than answers. It's the theories around Benin's death that connect the police to her killing that seem to prevail for them. The rumors that I basically heard was that around Washington Street. I contacted a few merchants, and then I went to talk to them because a lot of them know me. 
because I'm on the radio. They trust me with, with their thoughts. They said, you know what, I think the, the police killed her. We'll hear more from Samuel later on, but for now, like many others, he's frustrated there isn't more to know, to say about Benin's death. To be honest, it just, I wish I could I tell you somebody, because I want this thing to resolve. I want this thing to come to a conclusion, because in my heart, somebody from the police killed this little woman. Accidentally? Yeah, accidentally. But neighborhood rumors and theories can only take you so far in the search for closure, for justice. So we'll talk with someone in the district attorney's office, the office in charge of finding that justice. Because at some point, Andre, Jefty, and Nalissa need to find a pathway forward. That's next time. This episode of Last Scene was reported and written by Shannon Dooling. It was produced by Shannon and myself, Nora Sachs. Monica Campbell is our story editor. Mix, sound design, and original music composition by Paul Vikas. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Emily Jankowski, Matt Reed, Dean Russell, Emery Sievertson, Megan Cattell, Quincy Walters, and Grace Tatter. Our digital producer is Megan Cattell. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. You can find all of our stories and show notes at WBUR.org slash Last Scene and follow us on Twitter at Last Scene Podcast. Plus, you can always pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Drop us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, the third and final episode in our series, A Family's Peace. <laughs>